Hi, Kelly Vero here. Self-styled creative badass, disruptor, NFT and metaverse investigator. And I'm on a mission to uncover the world of wine and Web3. In this special series, we'll travel from soil and seed to mint and metaverse. Why don't you join me as we take in the real voices of Napa Valley and beyond in this fabulous world of wine and Web3. Tell me a little bit about where you both come from in terms of your background, because you can be an economics professor, but I know certainly, Ray, on your side, your economics really does come more from wine, where I think as Rob, does yours come a little bit more from the traditional route of economics or how does that work? Well, so I mean, just real quick on me, um, I came to Sonoma State. I grew up here in Sonoma County. I went to uh, undergraduate and graduate school here in California and came back here to teach. Um, my former wife was in the wine industry, and that's how I got introduced to the sort of the, the other side of the bar, if you will. So I was trying to think about people who know the this side of the bar where I have a glass of wine in my hand and then the other side of the bar where all the magic happens. That's where I really got into it. And I just found it fascinating that there were so many, I mean, from a consumer good standpoint, it's probably the most fascinating consumer good out there with the idea that there's so many brands, there's so many tiers, it's a regulated industry in the United States and to a certain extent worldwide because of that. Um, it's it's just a fascinating industry from an economic standpoint. If you, if you think about, you know, you look at the steel industry versus the wine industry, the wine industry has just got so much so much more of an amalgam of what happens in business in my mind because it's everything from dirt to glass and marketing and everything in between uh it's a, it's an amazing field to to examine with respect to how we think about academics and business schools so that that's what was really to me the most fascinating part of it otherwise i'm very you know i don't want to say it sound like a like a cello player but i'm very classically trained otherwise and so now ray tell me a little bit about you i noticed that you did a lot of your sort of post-grad studies with the New South Wales wine industry, right? So you've worked in Australia, is that right? Well, I went to school, I did, my I, yeah, I did my master's in wine business down at Adelaide. So I was in South Australia. And, oh, uh, South what Australia. What a great experience. Yes, yeah, but, but traveled throughout the country. Yeah, I got started in wine on uh, really on the tasting and uh, serving side. I worked in a restaurant where I had 80 wines on the list. And I knew that if I learned those wines backward and forward, I could build my check average. And uh, and also, okay. we were, I mean, we were 19, 20 years old. We weren't legal to drink in Pennsylvania. But if I ordered a bottle of wine in a restaurant and knew how to pronounce the name of the wine and the waiter didn't, I would more likely not be carded when I was out with a date. So it was a good strategy learning about wine uh, just before wow. you reached 21. Yeah. So but anyway. Uh, Yes, that was a long, long time ago. Uh, but fast forward, um, I moved to California because I wanted an opportunity in the in wine, right? There wasn't much in Pennsylvania. It was a bit challenged there. So I came to California. I carried a bag. I sold wine. I worked in retail. I came to education later after a long time tasting and writing about wine. And what was really neat after getting my master's at Adelaide, I just became so immersed in the business of wine. And it became a new chapter in my life, learning and talking with people, not about how the wine was being made or tasted, but actually how they were running their business. 
And we have the most amazing conversations with our board members. We meet with them quarterly. And front and center, we're talking about what is the opportunity that you're seeing? What are the challenges and how are you navigating them? And we have very frank discussions. And I have to tell you, it's incredibly energizing for me to see how people are navigating in what is such a complex marketplace, right? There are legal challenges that wine has that cereal doesn't. Uh, yeah, it's an incredible world. There are so many brands with brand proliferation that we've seen. To be competitive today, you really have to be on your game. And so that's what we're about here at the Wine Business Institute. If we bring us up to date, though, in today's society, and, you know, we talked about Adam Smith kind of earlier on in the conversation. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk today about this new, exciting, decentralized world of, of the unknown. We're almost, you know, going through uncharted waters and developing our own systems for being able to do things. I think I talked about me and my video games background and how we monetized that to be able to not make us all millionaires, but create a walled garden effect so that people who came into games would quickly understand what the economics of that business were and also how the business strategies of kind of web three um games metaverse are really dictating the future if you like of business and banking and systems in today's society though there is naturally a lot of push and pull because people are both not as trusting as they could be about the future because they have nothing to compare it against from the past. What do you see currently in the world of money and business? How do you see the changes impacting and affecting? I'm very much an impact measurement kind of person. So how do you see the impact of this brave, new, open, decentralized world impacting on current business trends and opportunities? Yes, I think the two major items, and I get this question a lot, just in the more generalist way that you asked it. Uh, The number one thing is just thinking about how transactions are going to take place with respect to people choosing multiple forms of currency potentially to do it. So one of the biggest problems with any kind of cryptocurrency to date is is its uh, transactions ease between what current currencies we have and whatever wealth you hold in that currency. So that that system is slowly evolving. And central banks, for example, are thinking about how they want to evolve to a digital currency, which may or may not compete or complement, uh, a completely, sorry, compete with or complement crypto otherwise. So I think the one thing from a business standpoint that a lot of uh, businesses are trying to reckon with is how can they change to keep up with potential preference changes in the way that people uh, want to buy and sell goods with respect to the medium of exchange in which that takes place. The second piece is generally how we use the underlying technology, which is blockchain throughout business. So and, and when blockchain first came on the scene, uh, before the currency evolution and revolution kind of took it, took blockchain up to a more of a pop idea, before that it was mainly in contracts that we could actually now much more easily get contracts done, be transparent in those contracts, uh, in a sense, decentralize the way that contracts were signed and and engaged. That's where a lot of the financial side of the world really saw blockchain and and most likely will evolve in such a way where that becomes more and more the case. 
but those were those are kind of the two major nodes that I've seen in terms of where we see decentralized finance or decentralized transactions taking place and, and proliferating at a general level throughout the business world. Mm-hmm. I'll come back to that because I think it's an important point. Uh, I have something that I wanted to sort of run past you and add to it, but Ray, I want to know what the, is there a sort of almost a San Andreas fault of business at the moment as well as we sort of, you know, is it quaking a little bit? Is the ground shifting and moving on the business and management side? Because I feel it working in this industry that people are becoming way more agile, not just in terms of their actions, but also in terms of their thinking and their strategizing about business. And it is following that trend. Do you agree? Or have you seen something different? I I think you're on to something there. Um, We recently completed a strategic uh, plan for the Wine Business Institute with our board members, and in the interviews, they did co- they did dozens of interviews with uh, industry leaders. And what people called for was the agility that you just mentioned. They asked for entrepreneurial thinking. They would like their their employees at every level to have an entre- entrepreneurial um, mindset, not to go out and start another business, but rather to know how to ado- adapt and adopt. Uh, the current business so that it continues to thrive. Mm, That's really interesting. I think, Mm -hmm. again, combining the business and the sort of decentralized blockchain, web three economies as well, the the big (laughs) void in our thinking, I feel, Rob, you might not agree with me, but a lot of it revolves around utility. I created um, a standard I, I'm, I'm sure you probably know that is going through the IEEE at the moment and it was a standard to protect the end user with what it was they were buying as an NFT but also mm-hmm. to protect the creators and the way that I did that was to formulate the smart contract as a series of elements that were put onto the blockchain from digital rights management to I wrote an algorithm for onward investment value against mm-hmm. current market fluctuations and it's so far been incredibly successful but a lot of things that are being brought into this new financial system are kind of bottomless soulless they don't have any utility or they're not backed by any kind of support mechanism to enable them in the same way you would have with fiat currency an opportunity for them to grow and to trade on world marketplaces it's just an assumption that if you make it then we put it on the blockchain and then it'll be great right that's correct i mean right now it's much it is in a sense literally virtual right there's the 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 tangibility of it and where it may go vis-a-vis what we think of as the classic marketplace is one of the biggest questions out there you know, and you start thinking about, and I think from kind of collect back to the first question you asked too, one of the things that's also a brave new world is whether or not you're going to have parallel parallel metaverses in which you're going to have to have different points of sale in each one of the evolutions of those metaverses and in that how the current transactions of things like NFTs will find marketplaces in, in, in markets we have not even figured out yet. That's what's so fascinating and so mind-boggling and really kind of very tough to put your arms around is that we just don't know in what markets we're going to be making these transactions five or ten years from now. We we think there's going to be a classic market for it, and we assume that because we're going to have to have you know, like 
some tangibility, some three-dimensional space in which those things are happening. Mm -hmm. But there may be 25 non-three-dimensional, you know, AI-driven, VR and AR-driven metaverses that haven't even been conceived yet at which this NFT may or may not be sold. And I think that's what makes it so tricky is that you just don't know yet, but that also makes a sort of brave new world, you know, uh, consideration that we're really making an investment for things we don't even know yet, but we know that they're coming. And that's where I feel like that you're going to see a lot of entrepreneurism is in is in people trying to, to see forward enough to where you jump in early and you've kind of made those early investments knowing they will pay off later. Uh, but in what form is the, is the real trick? I'll tell you offline, but I spoke to the CEO of a massive investment company last week and she said to me that every single member of her senior support staff, the C-level, if they haven't built a strategy into their future deliverables that involves the metaverse and the ability to balance decentralized currencies, NFTs and blockchain, they're going to have to look for another job because mm-hmm. there's going to be a kid waiting in the wings that is going to be more suitable to that position. <laughs> yep. Scary yeah, so, so when you think school, about it. Well, so the, to your point, though, the old school gamer who's 15 years old and has $7,000 worth of equipment in front of them between, you know, three-dimensional screens, the gamer chair, the whole nine yards, is now going to be the one that's building a metaverse that wants to jump in and is going to be five or ten years ahead on the coding side of anybody else that's working for you. And to your exact Absolutely. point, if you don't have that strategy, there's 25 people who are 18 years old who are going to be leaps and bounds ahead of you who are going to have one and that it's just basically a plug and play. I don't have to worry about it because this person's already got it nailed. The skill base is there. I just have to give them I have to give them the place in which they can monetize what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It brings us back to that agility focus where we've got to be strategizing ahead five to ten years from now not thinking about what's at the end of our nose i think and that's what's important especially with this uh, kind of virtual inception if you like (laughs) you know there is virtual experiences happening inside virtual experiences and we have to be prepared for it but i've worked with luxury companies and they are very sort of risk averse to a greater extent they want to collaborate they want to try stuff how do we kind of bring luxury into the fold we're already thinking a lot of us you two included about what where we're going to be five ten years from now in wines so where or how do we challenge these sort of future um far off and maybe speculative principles into actually today because a lot of our luxury companies live in the now right how do we inspire that desire well i i would first say i i think they're right to be cautious because one of the tenets of luxury uh, can be scarcity people run that and scarcity has to do with we made 1,000 bottles of this wine this year. That's all there is. The only way to experience that wine is to have one of those 1,000 bottles or to be at an event where somebody else is opening that wine for you. So you have to be careful when you take the experience in some way virtually that you don't erode your luxury position. And also, if you look at agricultural products in general, 
not just wine, but they're based on a sense of place, right? And the, and the Europeans have been very strong on that notion of place as primal, as, as primary. Um, but also we have it here too. If you know where the vineyard is in Sonoma County or where the estate is located in the Napa Valley, it, the, the, the sense of that brand is really tied to one place. Um, and if there's some sort of replication of it or some way for people to experience it without coming to that place, there's a chance that you'll lose some of that luxury positions. I mean, one of the things about that, too, is, is just thinking on the luxury side is that I think the caution is also that we, we don't know how people are going to consume. So from the wine side, you know, people, I mean, and Ray, please stop me if this sounds wrong, but what I've seen in a lot of people who buy luxury wine is they buy it for two reasons. They buy it, A, to library it and really in kind of a weird way, almost like a piece of art, never look at it again uh, with the idea that they want it there. If somebody asks, do they own a Chateau Petrus in the, in, you know, from 1947? And yes, I actually have one. It's here. I'm never drinking it. Uh, and then you have other ones that are really more for, I'm going to pull this bottle out at a very specific time in the future and I'm buying it because I do intend to consume it. So whether you consume it as art or you consume it as an actual consumable, I think is the real tension in the luxury side where in the, you know, sort of classic run-of-the-mill sort of, you know, pop premium branding in the wine industry, that's all 100% consumable. So it never really lives in the artistic side of the world or more like a gem, right? Um, so there's that part of it. And I think for a lot of luxury brands in terms of looking at the future and having that look, they're going to try to figure out, well, where does that live? So one thing about the NFT piece is it might be that you see luxury brands introducing something which is still kind of mind-boggling to me, an NFT that represents one of those one out of 1,000 bottles that lives in the metaverse, just like a library, right? Just like a piece of art would hang somewhere in the metaverse wherever you are. Uh, and then that, because it has the same functionality as what's sitting in your library. So that might happen. <laughs> we'll see. Uh, that That's the thing I think that a lot of luxury brands are going to have to reckon with is how much how much do we provide consumables and how much do we provide something that actually is in a kind of a weird way non-fungible? Mm -hmm. You know, to Rob's point on the, on the latter, the experience side, um, the chair of the economics department the other day, Chong, mm. he was telling us that he bought a bottle of Opus One uh, in the birth year of his daughter and he's going to give that to her for her 30th birthday and they're going to consume it together. And that really speaks volumes to Rob's point about the experience of wine and how events can be tied to that life life events right i mean people buy a bottle of vintage port to celebrate decades later um so it's a balance how how could you have that well if he gave her the nft for her 30th birthday of the bottle that he bought when she was born then she has the ability to have both the digital and the physical version of both and she doesn't need to drink the wine with her dad she can enjoy the nft in her own way potentially I'm just switching things up and driving you crazy. <laughs> no, no, but that, but that in fact, I think that's the tension is that, you know, what, how are people, how is the marketplace actually going to look at an NFT in the luxury wine branding yeah. piece different than how people look at a wine that they really don't intend, that they look at as an investment and don't intend to open? Because as soon as you stick the yeah. corkscrew in that wine, it basically kills the investment. So exactly. um, it, 
And so that tension, I think, is going to be really one of the things that is more on the luxury side of the industry. If there's any one penetration point in the industry that's really going to have a lot of depth, it'll be probably on the luxury and ultra premium sides because people will tend to hold those longer mm. than just, you know, say I've got a three year, three to five year period and I'm going to drink it one way or the other. Um, that'll be where I think that the tension starts. So the luxury piece is at least an entryway into that world that I don't think you're going to see in other places. The only other place you might hear about it is if they're becoming, this is kind of a mind-boggling piece that I've been thinking about since this whole thing started, is whether or not you're going to see sort of metaverse AVAs, right? So are there going to be, is there going to be terroir in the metaverse? <laughs> you know, I mean, you got to assume at some point somebody's going to say, hey, there's got to be money made by saying that this part of the metaverse actually is involved in wine and it's very mm -hmm. special for XYZ reasons. But that 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 really goes comes back to that tension of, what do people get from wine, period, right? So if you think about bucketing in two pieces, they get the artistic piece and then they get the consumable piece. And like you said earlier with the, with the, um, with the pillow effect kind of in Australia, twin, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. with the hobo pillow, right? Is that, you know, that, that's much more on the consumable side, right? I power through the wine and now I have something else I can use and it kind of has this, you, you know, weird effect. Mm. Nobody intends to library a box of wine, right? But if you do intend to library a wine, that's much closer to what we're, where the current thinking is, but it doesn't mean the thinking will stop there in terms of how NFTs work and how the artistic piece of wine works. Um, it'll be intriguing to watch and see how the technology evolves in such a way that whether or not you can get some more experiential pieces out of the metaverse that right now you really need to be in a sort of classic three-dimensional market to do. Well, yeah, I'm working with um, the Swiss watchmaking industry at the moment on a pretty huge project. And the heft really is about how do things follow when it takes a year to make a Swiss watch to a particular style for a particular high net worth individual? How do we manage the expectation of what comes out at the other end. Now, what usually happens in the Swiss watchmaking industry is that customer service gets a call every couple of months from someone saying, is my watch ready yet? Is my watch ready yet? So what we've decided to do is we've decided to build a system a little bit like games where we have the watch, it's in its very basic format, which is the, the CAD drawing. And then what we do is we do feature drops. So we will add new cogs, new jewels, new face, new bits and pieces. And that allows a high net worth individual to watch the watch as it's being made mm. right up to the end of that one year cut off. And then what they have is the opportunity, Rob, I don't know whether you like this or not, to be able to put this if they wanted to mm. into the second hand watch market. So if they wanted to put it into that marketplace, which is a very fluid marketplace worldwide anyway, it's very liquid. And so we have an opportunity there to be able to use the original watch as a means to say this is the proof of ownership and the digital twin that is the the provenance the smart contract the letter of authenticity whatever it is that you want to call it and those two things can both decouple and they can recouple however yep. we want to do it yeah and ray and i were just talking about this this morning is that the one place also where that would connect is in wines to know that somebody actually has that bottle Right. So the same yeah. deal. Right. It could be that you have a vintage coming because, you know, we tend to mm. in some cases in, it's in, in luxury, we tend to buy futures of wine because we know it's going to run out quickly. So I go and I I know that they're going to produce a thousand bottles. And so I buy a future in that. 
And then I can maybe even same deal in wine. You might be able to watch the wine get made, you know, that the bottle will slowly fill up and behind it is basically the process of the winemaking. And then once the wine goes live, you have the digital asset, which is the bottle in digital form. And then you have the physical asset and the two might, might be coupled or decoupled as the case may be. Um, that, but that is not going to happen in a $6 bottle of Pinot Grigio that you buy at the grocery store any night <laughs> no. of the week, right? No. So it's going it to, that's again, like I said earlier, it's going to be in the luxury market where if there's any initial penetration, it'll be there for those kind of reasons. Yeah. Also, so it's that's a, what factor. you just said, your example is a strong analog to what could happen in wine. Yeah, I hope so. And also another part of the discussion is the fact that I think, what this might enable and enhance is the opportunity. If you look at things as being art, as you mentioned before, we have a golden opportunity here to develop an entire new generation of wine growers and winemakers. And they might see what it is that's being created on the digital side, as well as the digital, as being something that is impactful in terms of, well, I could do that. I could be a winemaker. I could be a wine grower. And then we sort of apply that same sort of methodology to what's happening at the moment you know where you can buy a piece of a picasso as an nft and all of that is like a decentralized autonomous organization a big DAO where everyone has collectively bought guernica or whatever it gives people an opportunity into art or into winemaking that they wouldn't have ordinarily have had because it's distanced it's away from them so effectively it's doing quite a lot of brand awareness as well i think the future thanks mm. to the universe or the metaverse mm. whichever it is right. so that's mm -hmm. an ex i think it's a very exciting time to be alive in terms of winemaking luxury um the direction of movement for digital applications of course i mean for me this is my life anyway so it's n naturally second nature to me but for a lot of people that don't really have a complete understanding of what happens next what do you think would be a segue into this space you mentioned futures but future wine purchasing is that a good segue into the future of winemaking hmm. that's an intriguing question that would depend on how the technology delivers that sort of same sensory result to you on the winemaking side that's the only thing i can think of that even gets close to that other than that you know, we're still making bread in some of the same ways we made bread 10,000 years ago. Right. So the supposition that the evolution of technology would necessarily change the way we make wine, I think, is a little bit of a leap. Yeah. But I think it also mm -hmm. depends on whether or not the marketplace provides, and this is a very Adam Smithian take, but it depends on whether or not the marketplace actually delivered the profitability for someone to be entrepreneurial in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I feel like there is... A, a will to do it or actually no I feel there is a desire to do it but maybe currently because of the limitations of technology the will is not a hundred percent there and then because of that I don't think that it is really moving at such a pace where it is running alongside or or you know sparring with the metaverse and web3 in the way maybe that we would expect it to certainly on the luxury side i see that from what it is that i'm doing in luxury apparel and hard luxury and from what you've just said on the the wine side that is very important and true also i think there are sort of very specific limitations in wine that there probably aren't in suitcases or watches 
but it is something that we have to think about how we're going to overcome this because it is a definite possibility that certainly in the next few years we're going to see a profusion of of wine nfts there there are already wine blockchains over here in europe in france especially <laughs> there are a lot of associated uh, nfts or DAOs. but actually coming to that DAO sort of question i i lived in malta for five years it's really really hot and we had community bread making so you would have an amount of cereal and you would take that cereal, that wheat down to the community bakery and you would have it made into bread for you. And you just go and collect your bread kind of every week with the cereal, the wheat that you had um, uh, had uh, donated from your collection. Um, I wonder whether the same thing might happen with wine. Do you think that there is ever going to be any movement for us to be able to have a community winemaking experience? Oh well, that's been that done. could be interoperable. That, that's that's actually uh, a traditional example. If you look at the co-ops in other ag products, but including wine, yeah, certainly. Um, and, and there are still uh, cooperatives that exist today in France that have very successfully built a brand. Uh, sometimes borrowing a person's name who did live, sometimes not. And people collectively bring their grapes because they don't have the marketing muscle to create their own wine, go in, into the market, sell a value-added product. But they can contribute their grapes to a cooperative project that then puts a wine on the market. So that is, you're pointing to something that's very traditional. Yeah, and I wonder whether it is something, that traditional element, you know, to kind of force that Smithian uh, kind of vibe and experience. I wonder whether we can go in that kind of direction that maybe community wine production might be the thing that helps us to understand the limitations, the possibilities and opportunities that are involved in wine and winemaking businesses. I would love to be able to see though that we can move into a direction that is both commercial but does have a community element to it as well, allowing us to therefore do that thing that I talked about, which is, you know, you create the wine, it's going to take a while to be able to make the wine. Well, what can we do in the meantime? How can we come together and create things like maybe NFTs or work a little harder on haptic technology or taste technology, for, for example? Mm. Am I being really crazy, guys? Well, one of the challenge that you ha challenges that you have with a cooperative product is usually you can't get the same higher price uh, for that product as somebody who highly differentiates their wine. Uh, you look at places where co-ops have really thrived, it's been in almonds, right, or yeah. other yeah, commodity crops, right? If I have 10 acres, uh, a small garden uh, that has a wall around it, as you described, of almonds, I'm probably not going to be able to sell that anywhere in the marketplace. So I pull my resources with all the other growers in the San Joaquin Valley, and together we have enough muscle out in the marketplace to sell, but it's not to create the high value that I could if I really brought my own 10 acres to market on my own, but it's hard to do. It, it just, it's really hard to establish your own brand by yourself. So I, that's just a long way to say, I don't know that it's going to lead to the kind of financial success that you've, you've talked about if people pull their resources in that sort of way. Yeah, and, and naturally- And that's exactly economics. how it works in a DAO. Sorry, Rob. Yeah, it's okay. In, in, in economics at some point, to raise exact ideas that, you know, we strive for differentiation to generate profit. 
So the more yeah. homogenous we become, the less likely we are going to profit from that homogenous product, unless there's some shortage or some mm -hmm. way we can, you know, if you look at oil right now, oil is a great example of a very homogenous product globally that when it goes through shortages and surpluses, the, the price of it fluctuates all over the place. Um, mm -hmm. So it's the more, it, what we've seen, at least in Napa, and Ray, stop me if any of this sounds wrong, is we have seen vineyards become very differentiated with the idea that instead of them trying to vertically integrate and go, okay, we have really, really solid markets for our, for our grapes. Why don't we do that and do our own wine brand? And then they go, uh oh, that's going to take five or $10 million to actually get off rather than just focus on the grapes, keep going to the, you know, to a hundred, 200, mm -hmm. $400 bottle of wine, generate that premium price right. and, and, and focus on how differentiated we are versus how homogenized we are or trying to develop it otherwise. I mean, you found my market niche and I run with it. I mean, that's kind of in many ways, I think how you see, um, uh, I mean, luxury, luxury brands and wine industry generally depend on luxury grape, at least marketplace wise, mm -hmm. this, the perception that the grapes are, there's something special about the grapes that go in. Um, so that's, I don't know if we're going to see too much of an evolution in that sense, um, where people are going to be attracted to something that looks more like a cooperative model. I agree. Where is actually in, F in NFTs and the world of uh, Web3 and decentralization, it is the DAOs that are doing the best. Those groups of folks that are community focused and are buying things as part of a community. So examples might be her story, which is focused on black and Latin American art for women, by women. And actually the DAO, I believe, is run by Mark Cuban. So mm. this is kind of very interesting to see that they do really, really well, but their focus is very sort of, well, it's not massively homogenous, but it is focused on a particular style of art that they want to buy or a particular type of NFT that they want to, to kind of draw in. And that's why I think DAOs are quite interesting in terms of being the juxtaposition of maybe community winemaking. So who knows, we might get to see uh, a sort of old old world collection, a DAO collection that is just focused on old world NFTs of luxury wines based out of, you know, France, Italy, uh, Spain, Germany, etc. So I, I don't know that your your kind of um, vision of this excites me massively because you're just giving me like a million ideas of things that mm. I want to go and research and think about now, which is really helpful. Where do you see Napa Valley sort of five to ten years from now or, or Sonoma where do you see the the wine yards as they are now how do you see them sort of five or ten years from now I spoke to somebody the other day who's a technologist in this space and so she had a very different interpretation about how she saw the future of the valley well I think it's if more you traditional look at Napa, I yeah I, I think if you look at the Napa Valley it's um over over many years it's developed the number one position on the branding ladder and oh, so yeah. when people think of a region in the united states they think of napa first but they also think of sonoma county second so that it's very very hard to ever knock somebody out of either position one or two on a branding ladder so i think in five to ten years uh, napa and sonoma are still going to occupy presence of mind with consumers when somebody says, I'd like a wine from California, those two place names are going to be top of mind. 
What if they say I want an NFT wine from California? Do you think they'll be going to Napa Valley and Sonoma County? Like I said earlier, one of the things that they, if, if you think about NFTs in more of the artistic versus the consumable space for the time being, th- those brands that have the artistic connection and where I really want to library those wines rather than consume them relatively immediately is where that's going to happen. And I think for the same exact reasons uh, Ray just articulated, it's going to be Napa and Sonoma are going to be right at the top of the list. And if I could wear a skeptical hat for a moment, Kelly, what we don't know is how the NFTs will hold their value compared to the actual physical product. Uh, if, if you look at secondary markets in wine, for example, uh, what, wine, what Rob talked about, the collector who is never going to consume the bottle, that it holds its value. If they decide they want to put it on the secondary market, it goes to auction, it goes for a price, whatever that is. Let's, say, let's call it X. The challenge that we've seen with NFTs generally, and I don't know how this will play out in wine, is that the first go can be quite a a big hit. Look at Beeple. I mean, Beeple did quite well, right? But we're seeing some NFTs in sports memorabilia, for example, or sport moments that have been captured. Uh, High price at, at the outset, and then secondary market can't keep up. Uh, and pe- people take a loss if their thinking was to get in that market for making money, for profit. So I, I think we have to ask that question. The same thing could happen with wine, uh, and we'll see how it plays out. I think things fail the cost-benefit analysis very quickly when we talk about new and exciting technology. It really does, because it's, if it's more expensive to make than the return that you make on it, then it's like completely pointless. However, I will also say that perceived value plays a massive part in NFTs. And one of the, the things that people do when they create NFTs is they place an unrealistic perceived value on top of it. And mm-hmm. they sort of say, yeah, that sporting moment is going to be something that everybody's going to want to watch. We well, had to remember that some people weren't born at the time of the 1966 World Cup final. All they know about the World Cup final in 1966 is what they've read on Wikipedia. And that's not supportive enough to be able to increase value. Sometimes what you have to do is be there or have some connection to it. And that's why, to your point particularly, Rob, I think it's fascinating to look at the world of wine sort of five or ten years from now as the starting point for NFTs. And you may not agree with me. I hope you do, but you might not. Coming from the place of brand awareness first. So build that brand awareness. That it kind of exacerbates, if you like, the perceived value of what is being created. And then that secondary marketplace comes from a place of, oh, yeah, of course I know Dr. Rob's wine. It's the most famous wine in Napa Valley. Of course I'm going to buy it. Of course, because five or ten years from now, you will have worked hard or maybe you will have worked passively on that brand awareness. So actually, like with the Swiss watch market, what you find in the secondary marketplace is everybody is buying the perceived value of the brand before they're buying whether the watch works or not. I've had a couple of Swiss watches, right? And I've had to send them back to the workshop to get them fixed again. And, and it is soul destroying. But the point of fact is, is that I've bought into a brand 
yes. bought into right. that brand and that's what I yes. bought first. So if we're not doing that brand awareness work in the primary marketplace, then we can't expect that perceived value to kind of raise in the secondary marketplace space. So yeah, I totally buy into everything you're saying. So Kelly, one extra thing in, in Braid, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, is climate change. So one of yeah. the things we may see is, and this kind of this kind of feeds into the idea of perceived value. If we think that climate change is going to change wine growing regions in terms of what they grow, where they're located, the amount that the yields that we get, which then will change down the supply chain, how much wine we get out of those yields. Um, one of the things that may change is the way that Napa Valley operates with respect to winemaking because climate shifts that. But that's you know, all three of us may not be here anymore when all that really comes to pass. However, the beauty of the metaverse is I can freeze my own perception of Napa Valley in that space forever. But if I and if I can monetize that and furthermore, if I can actually experience that completely, that's I think where we're going to maybe see a little extra where it's really the preservation of assets that otherwise are changing in ways that we can't necessarily control easy. Mm -hmm. So that might be another place where you get a little bit of action with respect to people looking at the metaverse as a way of, of sort of freezing in time. So again, we're back to brand. And we're back to that sort of heritage development and and more importantly we're looking at pivoting again and that whole pivoting strategy i think is the most uh, for me anyway when i talk to people about the future of technology being an entrepreneur in this space is all about pivoting who knew that two and a half years ago three years ago we would be facing a pandemic everybody was living their best life kissing on three cheeks everything was great and then boom we've all got to pivot into a new industry a new area and we've got to figure out ways that we can be agile so back to your original point ray <laughs> The entire process is about thinking ahead and being able to create, prepare for incoming storms and just generally protecting and harnessing and nurturing that brand. It's what a true. fascinating conversation. And look at the opportunities that have been opened up uh, for those who adapted to virtual contact with their consumers, right? Have you got any final thoughts, guys? I've really enjoyed our conversation, but... <sighs> I've really enjoyed the opportunity to kind of spar with you a little bit because I come from the future and I know that, that you also have future thoughts, but it was really nice to be challenged on some of the things that I've really taken for granted as I've gone through this metaverse change of life, if you like. So it's quite exciting to speak to to you both, both from a kind of happy opportunistic perspective but also i really love the skepticism i really love the challenge of the things that we have to overcome and the things we have to change in order to be accepted and be acceptable so thank you for that you bet uh, pleasure kelly you have to come and study with us sometime there you go wow rob and ray really didn't go easy on me in this episode and i love that we had an incredible conversation and you can listen to this over and over again. The future of wine in the metaverse is one of the most exciting things to happen to the future. I'll be talking about this a lot more over the next few episodes. So why don't you keep in the loop with us? Look for Cuvée Collective on Discord, Instagram 
And you can also go over to cuvecollective.com. Looking forward to seeing you next time.